What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 683 with my guest, Dale. You're listening to the Metal Illness Happy Hour. If you're new, uh, this is a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. I am not a therapist, and this is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm a jackass that cooked chicken on basic cable, but I'm also a little bit nuts. I've battled a lot of things in the lab. I don't know why I pronounce battled like that. <laughs> like all of a sudden, I'm a Midwestern morning DJ. Uh, but yeah, I, um, I started this podcast because when I was at the depths, the darkest times of my life, specifically about 20 plus years ago. Um, I thought there was no hope. I thought I was alone. And once I began to recover and feel hope and develop tools to cope, I thought, I think a podcast would help people. And I think I would enjoy doing it. And here I am 12 years later, 13 years, 13 now. 2011, 20, 13 years later. Holy shit. And that's weird because I'm only 14 years old. Yes, I was just a baby. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Diesel. And about her bulimia, she writes, Like a secret ball and chain no one can see. Alone. Always alone with this monster that won't let me be happy. Thank you for that. That is uh, that's deep. That's the part that's the feeling in wanting to feel invisible and yet hating that we feel invisible. I think so much of life is just wanting to control the way in which we're seen. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a guy who called, I don't know what this means, fake Vittorio Tondelli. I have the feeling it's probably a TV character or maybe a movie character. Uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? He, he, he lists a bunch, but I'm just going to read one because, boy, does it just distill it down. He writes, everyone will discover sooner or later who you really are. Boy. Oh, that, that feeling that we have to hide this part of ourselves to stay safe. And yet, ironically, the real freedom and vulnerability is sharing that with, but finding safe people to share that with. 
not toxic people, because then that just reinforces the feeling of rejection and not enoughness. This is a happy moment filled out by our friend TR, and he writes, I was recently accused of making a threat by a former friend. Couldn't be further from the truth. People have been very supportive and told me they don't believe the accusation. One friend of mine believes in the power of crystals. In parentheses, I don't. He gave me a big hug the next time he saw me. Then he reached into his pocket to get the smoky quartz he always has with him. I think you need this more than I do, he said as he handed me his special crystal. I still don't believe in the power of crystals, but in that moment, I felt love. I felt heard and seen. I almost cried right there. This was something important to him, and he gave it to me. That smoky quartz is still in my pocket, and when I'm down, I hold it and remember a beautiful moment with a friend. I love that. I mean, isn't that what we're after? We just think money or popularity or... Those moments when when I feel connected and loved, it's like the rest of the world, just the problems, you know, quote, unquote, problems, um, just have a different perspective on them. This is from the Religious Abuse Slash Trauma Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself me, and she writes... Uh, I can remember one of the many churches my mom took us to as children as being particularly frightening. I remember two women who attended and regularly, regularly became, quote, possessed, unquote, by God. They would scream out in tongues, which for anyone familiar is a fake language used by many to speak to God. And they can roll around on the floor, flopping their arms and legs around. As a young girl, I was terrified at some things I witnessed. By the way, how do you know if somebody's having a seizure? That would be a terrible time to have a seizure. Uh, however, one of the scariest days after church was when I overheard some women from the church asking my mom if my little sister and I were old enough to start wearing their hair in buns. They already didn't like my sister and I, and that was in parentheses in case it was confusing or in quotes uh, as to who was saying it. They already didn't like my sister and I to be allowed to wear pants. It sounds like a good church. My heart sank thinking about how the way I wear my hair was no longer going to be an option for me. My father already prohibited the cutting of a girl's hair. And now this too? Thank God. My mother tends not to make friends for very long, and my next church was much more lenient on hair and clothes. <laughs> I love that that's a positive, that your mom's a bridge burner. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Raven Black. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? That I need to eat less because I am fat and need to lose weight. That nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. That. That is a horrible t-shirt. Nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. I fucking love when somebody does a struggle in a sentence and they just condense it so eloquently. Now, I don't struggle with bulimia, but I've, I've been doing reading uh, the struggle in the sentence surveys for 
God, probably a decade. I've read hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of them. And um, you guys paint such a picture of your struggles. And when you do it poetically and succinctly, I'm just, uh, I don't know, so grateful. This is from the Fear Survey, and this is filled out by a trans woman uh, in her 20s who calls herself still not sad enough to be a famous famous artist, I guess. I think we've read some of her surveys before. Uh, And she writes, I'm afraid that no matter how educated, successful, emotionally intelligent, talented, conventionally attractive, etc., that I become, I will never have a long-term romantic partner and will die alone because being a trans woman makes me untouchable to the overwhelming majority of men on the planet. I'm afraid that I will ultimately have to settle with only ever being someone else's quick flame, experiment, fetish object, and or embarrassing secret. I'm afraid that everybody is only humoring me and that nobody is actually capable of seeing me as a woman. I'm afraid that by the time I've finished the rest of my transition and pass as a woman 100% of the time, that I will still be unwantable because I will be too old to be attractive. And I fear that I will die feeling like I was never seen in the first place. Thank you for that. And man, isn't it all about, maybe I'm repeating myself, but about feeling seen, validated. We're going to take a quick break, see if we have any sponsors. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Falcon. And she writes, I've struggled with severe general anxiety my whole life. So when I developed tinnitus, a constant, inescapable ringing sound in one of my ears at the beginning of 2024, I was 
unsurprisingly, not coping well. After three ENT appointments, a hearing test, an MRI, and hours of ill-advised and generally terrifying web searches failed to unearth much hope. I took the afternoon off from work to see a specialist, an hour's drive from home. It was a long shot, but I was desperate to hear some advice, any advice beyond learn to live with it because there's no cure and it's not going away. After the 10-minute consultation with the specialist, it was clear he also did not possess a magic wand, and my far-flung hopes were once again shattered. I left the office in tears of fear and hopelessness. Was I condemned to hearing this accursed ringing in my ear for every moment the rest of my life? Would I never again enjoy a moment of quiet? I started my drive home in a cold sweat, near panic, waiting at a stoplight, Fumbling for distraction, I opened my music app to the first station tagged as relaxing. The first song started to play. It was an instrumental cover of The Sound of Silence. That feeling of being trapped in your own life with no way out. All my altars have different handwriting, different affects. I'm somebody in prison. My mom taught me about rape. And I'm nobody on the streets. Before she taught me about love. Nobody will ever love me enough. There's two lies. A kind pimp. Yes. The secret shameful life at home. Happiness isn't the goal. That you always just don't talk about. And then there's the front. The goal is meaning. It's hard to go into the dark places. I should have leaned into that feeling and gotten curious about it. Recognize when your fears are driving your behaviors. What you resist gets louder. And run toward them. She said, you first. And I said, I might be gay. I was with a girl. And I said, and what do you have to tell me? She said, I'm moving to Florida and this is my last session. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with uh, Dale. I met you in a support group years ago. And then our paths crossed uh, a couple of weeks ago again mm, yes and you were kind enough to accept my invitation to come talk about social and sexual anorexia yes which doesn't get talked about uh, a whole lot and i think a lot of uh, inside the recovery rooms and outside the recovery rooms um where do we begin and and when we're using the word anorexia for anybody who's not familiar with social and san uh social and sexual anorexia it has nothing to do with the food anorexia i would also add that there's an emotional anorexia piece to that too so it's all three things yeah um so give a broad overview and then we'll go into the details but give a broad overview if you would to somebody who's kind of scratching their head right now going, what are, you t what are you talking about? You know, What are some of the ways that you avoid those types? Of situations? Situations, uh, ways of healthily um, giving yourself those things that the average human being kind of needs you know the human connection the... for me um i mean i've, I've always been afraid and you know shyness of people. of people of um 
sit, um, unfamiliar situations, possibly um, authority figures, um, and this all starts very early. You know, um, I think I was competitive, but I didn't like to lose, so I avoided those kinds of mm-hmm. things, sports. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. I just was, I was just afraid. So I, I, I tended to, um, spend a lot of time by myself. I, did you have siblings? I had a younger, I have a younger brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I don't remember a lot about my childhood, but, and I remember, you know, we did a lot of things. Um, we were, um, in some ways, we had an amazing childhood. We were exposed to different things. We lived on Lake Sammamish when we were, you know, young, and so we. Where's that? That's outside of Bellevue, Washington. Oh, beautiful! And there. we and we had a. Um, my dad was in sales. Rented a house that was on the lake. It happened to be in probate. Um, he had tried to buy it, but um, um, but it was probably on an acre lakefront property, and we had wealthy neighbors and mm-hmm. um and so we got to partake in a lot of things that that other kids didn't mm-hmm. get to do so but i still i just i've always felt separate and apart from people what were some of your earliest memories of feeling apart and different were there any particular situations or was it just a general kind of voice in your head I think it was a general voice, but I also I, it was terrified of getting punished, um, making a mistake, um, you know, all those things that a lot of kids have. But I tended to I reacted much more strongly to it than it, In, inwardly or outwardly, or both. Um, both, both. Um, Did it draw the attention of your parents? Like what? What? What's going on? What's why are you so afraid of this? Well, I think at start I I was willful, you know, <laughs> and I I learned how to say no, and but that didn't matter, you know. And and back in those, what do you, what do you mean? You learned how to say no, but it didn't matter because it didn't matter if I didn't want to do something, I had to do it anyway. And, and is this under the? healthy realm of discipline and structure by a parent or was this kind of over the line in today's standards i think it would have been over the line i mean back in those days women were seen and not heard and you're you're how old i'm 72 okay um and we were taught to just be quiet not say anything and um, don't speak unless you're spoken to um, there was an undercurrent of women were sort of second-class citizens. Um, and my mother, I perceived as being very weak and passive. Was your father domineering? Very much so. And rageful. He suffered from PTSD from the war. And um, and I, I was first born, so I was I was the lightning rod. So I would get punished for little things that, you know, I mean, I spill my milk and I'd get dragged into the other room and spanked, you know. Did you have any idea at the time that that um, this was related to your dad's experience in the war? No, I had no idea. 
that's this has all all been recent that I've that I've come to realize, you know, and uh, his his you know, and his child. It's it's generational trauma that's passed on, you know, um, and I have understanding and compassion at this point in my life. And I, I, I will say that I had a very rocky relationship with my father and, and we didn't speak for over 20 years. And I, I, I hated him. I blamed him for all my faults. Right. And, and, uh, I, I, I felt like I got the negative aspects of both my parents and I didn't get any of the positive. Good ones. job. Good job. <laughs> Yeah, I've come to realize that's not true, but <laughs> um but it took me a long time. I just I couldn't see it, you know. And um so I just was afraid. And um and created a life around feeling um safe. What what were you the know? ways that you remember soothing yourself? Uh, food sugar i mean i think i i think i was stealing candy and cookies when i was um, first grade kind of i i think first or second grade i put on i i was pleasantly plump you know and um but my parents were Worried, and they took me to a doctor who put me on diet pills. God, you really did grow up in the fifties. Holy shit! And, and my mother took Dexedrine while she was pregnant with me, so she wouldn't gain weight. So, you know, and smoked and drank and all those things. So, yeah, we've come a long way, huh? We have. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, you know, I was wrong. I was, I, I. I didn't realize it. I mean, I was rebelling against what I thought was um, um, uh, an oppressive environment, and I had no support. Um, you know, when I was, my mother told me that I rejected her at birth. How I know, I I know, I don't know. That's what she said. You storm out of the room on your little baby legs. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anyway, she told me that um, uh, not all that long ago before she died. But um, I, I never, and I, I was so stunned, I didn't know how to say, well, what do you mean by that, you know? Um, but that was Dr. Spock. Those were in the days where you let a baby cry, they'll cry it out. I, they didn't want me to wake them up in the morning, so they would put a bowl of cereal in my crib. So, you know, I had something and, and, to eat. And for the younger people, uh, <laughs> she's referring to Dr. Benjamin Spock, <laughs> not Leonard <laughs> Nimoy or however you pronounce his last name. Oh. Yeah, that, oh, he, he was a, a pop culture phenomenon. Yes, he was. And uh, a medical doctor who... and And... Women followed him, and it, my parent, mom did as well. Yeah, parents followed his. I mean, what, whatever he said, that was mm -hmm. God's. You know, that was a voice from God, and um, yeah. So that was the era that I grew up in, and um, you know, I'm I'm sure other people other people had much worse treatment. You know, I'm I was always told you've got a you've got food on the table and a roof over your head. You know, be grateful, and um, 
so that yeah um i did the best i could i i was considered very bright but i felt stupid because i that's the environment i grew up in were were you told you know you mm-hmm. failed here you know yeah well i didn't i didn't do it right and was this your dad or your mom or both? Both of them, but primarily my dad. And she went be, along with whatever he said. So. Gotcha. And would, would there be anger attached to it? Mm-hmm. And the anger was not tolerated in the house. By you? Yeah, by us children. Right, but your dad expressed it. Yeah, and my mother, I never saw her get angry. Would your dad just express it uh, verbally or was there physical displays of anger? There was, I mean, he didn't beat us. We got spanked, you know, and, um, but it was the look. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. just, I was, I was afraid of that man. And I, to this day, I, you know, he can, I can still go there, but, um, I, I just, I did my best not to aggravate him. Um, but there were, let's just say there were a lot of expectations. Um, and I, you know, I, I mean, I had potential. I was told I had talent. I could do, my mother, um, before she met my dad, was, had a, um, was accepted on a scholarship to San Francisco Conservatory of Music for piano. And she did not go because she ended up marrying my dad. So we always had a piano in the house. But I, I don't know. I, I felt like you know, I, I had piano lessons. But as a kid, I, I, I didn't want to practice. And, um, and they, gave, they gave up because it was too much of a battle. So um, I stopped. <laughs> so talk, talk about your um, relationships in school. Or lack of? You know, we moved quite a bit. So, um, I, you know, I remember when we were in like Sammamish, I had um, friends, we neighbors who were friends, um, but we were only there for like three years. And then we moved to Minnesota for four months and then moved back to California in the Bay Area. Um, and so I, I think I was in the fourth grade at that point. And I, I mean, I remember I, I had friends, but I don't, I don't, I didn't make any lifelong friends. I do have a friend from high school, um, and, um, uh, that we're still friends, um, but everybody else I've lost touch with. So, yeah, I didn't have any strong connections as a kid. So let's let's fast forward. And are we skipping over any big events, vignettes, kind of, that uh, you feel were um, emblematic of your... Oh, well, I would say somewhere around 11 or 12... Um, and I and I don't know. I I did. I fell off a horse when I about that time, and I had a hand. It. I was unconscious, um, 
I don't know what part that plays in everything, but um, and, and the time wise, I'm, I I don't remember. But I I my dad would lecture. That was his favorite thing to do, and um and I got lectured a lot. So, and I eventually just shut down. I just I stopped talking, literally stopped talking, except that when I went to school. I think I talked in well, I didn't talk much in school either, but. Um, I had the ability to speak. Let me just say that. And um, um, so they sent me to therapy. And the therapist, there was a psychologist, and at the time he said, this is a family issue. I remember, and my dad says he doesn't remember this at all, but I remember that the therapist um, had said or that my parents they went to one session and then they didn't want to go back. Um, they were afraid that they might end up in a divorce. They said that to you or they, I, I don't know where I mm-hmm. heard it somewhere gotcha. and I, I don't know where I heard it. So I, that's, that's what stuck in my mind. And I ended up seeing that man for, I don't know, probably through high school. And do you feel like it helped? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say this. He, I didn't know this, but he he told my dad to back off, give me some space. So I think that was a good thing. Um, so your I, dad did listen. He did, but he but he basically just um, just didn't have anything to do with me, pretty much, except what was necessary. Um, it did allow me to go to the Monterey Pop Festival, though. No. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> And uh, I was at, you know, the summer of love. I, all, I did, I was, I was a wannabe hippie. I never quite, you know, I was, I was much too conservative for that. But um, I did as much as I possibly could. Um, and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, I was, yeah, free love, all of that. I, I did my best to partake of um, did you, everything did you, I could have. Did you do that because you wanted to or you wanted to fit in? I think I wanted to. I, I mean, there was a freedom there and drugs. Well, that that's when I got drugs and alcohol allowed me to um, to I mean, alcohol was liquid courage for me, you know, I, and I it enabled me to step out and do things that I ordinarily wouldn't do. So it took away that fear. Interacting with people mm-hmm. would uh, to. uh be sexual with someone was alcohol necessary. Um. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I because it was such a big part of my life. I mean, I was a virgin until I was eighteen, which in those days was that, that was I was old. But um. But alcohol was involved in that. You know, I when I was sixteen, I went on a summer vacation with a. Friend and their and her family and we were up in the Russian River and we there were some guys so that was sixty seven summer of love mm-hmm. and um so and we hooked up with these guys and you know we had fun and heavy petting making out and all that kind of stuff um and I had braces all through high school so what I didn't realize until after the fact I actually went to see this guy. Um, afterwards and I saw how he lived and, and he was a speed freak 
and use needles. And I, I didn't know that at the time. And I ended up coming down with hep C. Um, so I was 16. But I got that wow. because of the braces, you know. Oh, because your uh, skin my lips. was exposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we didn't know what it was back. I mean, we knew it was hepatitis, but it wasn't until the 90s that they figured out it was was such a thing as hep C. Is that a lifelong thing? Uh, it can be. It usually don't develop any symptoms until 20 or 30 years later. Um, and uh, it can lead to liver cancer and um, cirrhosis. Um, and yeah, I it, it but I was successfully treated. It, oh, good. I was almost in cirrhosis. Um, and wow. that's a whole other story, but... <laughs> Um, but it was successfully treated. So, okay. So the summer of love, you're coming out of your shell. Um, talk about. Uh, I mean, you just mentioned one. I guess you could call it a, a relationship. <laughs> if if two dates count as a as a relationship, um, talk about when. You talk about a romantic uh connection or lack thereof okay uh, when you when you began to notice that there were hurdles or you know whatever the issue was because obviously years later you came into support groups so i'm kind of wondering when did the issues begin to surface that ultimately brought you into support groups and what did that look like well i uh, okay I, my initial, I was, um, I got married and I, you know, I myself was an alcoholic. Um, I also developed bulimia um, when I was 27. I read an, a magazine article and I thought, oh, that's, not, that's a good idea. That's how to, a way to control my weight, right? <laughs> so this is my twisted thinking, yeah. you know, um, but. I, I had multiple relationships, and I lived with two guys before I got married. Um, uh, at the same time? No, okay. no. Different times, and um, actually three, when I think about it. A, a sequential, mm-hmm. um, not, I was faithful in one uh and not faithful in two of them. Um, what do you remember thinking or feeling about your decision to be unfaithful? I just, I, I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy in the relationship, but I wasn't, I wasn't emotionally available. Neither were they. I mean, just, you know, um, two alcoholics, because that was, we drank, and that we just, and we did drugs, and... Um, that's just what we did. And right. and so um, that allowed me to be in the relationship. And then I got married and I was married for 13 years. I left that relationship after 11 because the red, I, we, red flags, I you know, there were things early on in the marriage that I saw. Were the qualities of your dad and the guy that you chose? Well, I didn't. Um, they were actually. But I didn't know that until after we were married. I, you know, I didn't get to know 
I really didn't get to know him. And I, um, I was, I was very attracted to him and there was this very strong pull lust, you know, um, and I thought he had all the qualities that I was looking for. Right. And, um, he didn't, (laughs) but, um, once we ended up, we had a, had a business together and, um, you know, initially I, I stood my ground. I, I, I was able to say, you know, I don't like this or this isn't right or we, we need to do something different. And, but eventually I just, I gave up. I was, um, and I just sort of, but I was very complacent and I just, it was too much work, too hard, and I didn't know what else to do. I didn't feel I could leave. Um, and, and, you know, it, listening to you um, trying to make it work with an untreated alcoholic, <laughs> of course, we can laugh about it now because we've been in support groups and we know that, you know, you're trying to climb Mount Everest in flip-flops. Exactly. But at the time, you're like, I love why to- can't I be a better mountain climber and change him? I do hike in my flip-flops, by the way. <laughs> Not Mount Everest. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So you get out of your marriage. What What next? Well, first I got sober. And how long have you, are you still sober? Yes. How long have you been sober? Oh, a little over 31 years. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. And I was... Um, I was I would say I was forced. I was given the opportunity. I mean, I knew I knew my drinking was a problem and but I was terrified. I didn't want to let because it was medication for me. It I it allowed me to while it was killing me, it allowed me to think I was part of the mm-hmm. world and um you know, if it um anyway, I was threatened with loss of my job. Um because of my drinking. And so I was offered, um, after the second warning, this, these were a year apart, I was offered, um, treatment and, um, and I, I said yes, because I knew I needed help. And, um, and I, I mean, a day had not gone by when I didn't think about drinking and I drank every day. So, um, the idea of not was just terrifying to me. And, but once, once I got in that treatment center, um, and I, I mean, I knew that I knew it was it, you know, they, they say, um, they say one day at a time. Right. But I knew that was forever. I, you know, maybe one day at a time, but I can never drink again. I knew that. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, uh, but once I accepted that and, um, the obsession to drink, was gone so and it's never come back so i'm extremely grateful and and i would assume that you put work in the present day into maintaining your sobriety i do yeah i do and so once once i didn't have any drugs or alcohol and at the end it was just alcohol um i realized what a prude i really was and and a relationship terrified me because I lost myself in the relationship with my husband. 
who's also a sex addict, sex and love addict, you know, um, which I identify with. Because I, when I was drinking and using, I was very promiscuous. And, um, but once that went away, I, yeah, there's no way I could do that. So, so I just, um, I had opportunities, but I, I just said, no, I, I was incapable of being in a relationship. Talk about what that looks like in terms of the thoughts that go through your head when an opportunity is presented the thoughts that go through your head, whether it's future tripping, catastrophizing, um, what you feel, if anything, in your body. Uh, That's difficult because I sort of disassociate. Um, I, I like the idea of a relationship, um, but I also enjoy my life, and I, I'm very very happy with my life on my own. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, the idea of, of you know, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can identify. Well, I'll tell you, whenever I'm confronted with something that I, I feel like I'm put on the spot, um, whether it be a relationship at work or with a boss, or um, you're talking about a romantic relationship? No. Okay. Um, yeah. A connection. A no. connect. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't have a problem necessarily with a man if I'm not attracted to him. As soon as, um, if I feel like they have you know, there's some power. I mean, it's, it's power and control, right? Um, trying to to manage things. If if I feel threatened in any way, um, I just I I retreat. I withdraw. I I go into this place of confusion, overwhelm, threat. I and I I just I I just pull away. I. And I, I do have difficulty talking or expressing myself. I um, started dating a while back, which is something I hadn't done for many, many years. And let, uh, hold that thought. Okay. Where you are. Um, what was the catnip for you? What were the qualities that would attract you, however brief, to a man if there was a type, especially personality traits? Um. Well, somebody that I found attractive. So physical? Physical attraction. Um, uh, musicians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Sometimes there's just, I get a sense about people. Somebody who I might not find attractive necessarily, but there's something, there's something there is an attraction there, not maybe not physically, but. Um, and would they be people who felt safe, or people who were kind of chaotic, and there was an allure to that? I don't think I used to be attracted to bad boys, you know. Um, 
not not so much anymore um i don't know you know it's okay i'm i'm just curious so pick up mm. your your thought then where where you were where was i <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, so you were talking about how you would you would kind of shut down uh, around you know authority figures. Um, oh yeah, and then oh, and then I was talking about dating, and and um, I, I I guess it, it comes down to I have I have poor boundaries. I don't I, I don't know what's mine, what's yours. So an enmeshment kind of codependent kind of. Is this also behaviors include, also include you crossing other people's boundaries or I, mostly you not enforcing both, your own both okay I, I i don't i'm just beginning to um realize that that's a, a necessary piece in a relationship so that i feel that i'm protected mm-hmm. um can you give me some examples where you would cross the person's boundaries and they would cross yours whether they were expressed oh. and set or not Oh, I mean, I would just say um, sharing with somebody, like it's called trauma bonding, mm-hmm. you know, where you overshare, you, you know. I know nothing about that, Dale. <laughs> My God. <laughs> but but you feel like there's an attachment. It's there's a high. An, it, yeah, there's an identification there and, and you're going, oh, you, a, a um, a sympathetic soul or right. somebody who understands me, you know, and then I'm, you know, it's, it's, um, there's, um, to rescue or be rescued. You know, I think I'm a rescuer. I, the day I, I had to fly to Reno to finalize our divorce papers. And, um, and as my now ex husband was driving me back to the airport, there was a part of me that, knew he needed to be taken care of, you know, and that I almost like threw all of that out the window and went back. But there was a part of me that said, remember, no, Dale, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't want that anymore. And, uh, but it was, it was a really strong pull. And was that pull merely you not wanting to imagine him unable to care for himself or was there also an attraction to that being quote unquote needed to help him survive? I think it was an attraction to be need. I, he, I that I felt needed that yeah. I, you know, and traditionally women have been the emotional support for their men and uh, yeah, but that no. <laughs> and would it be fair to say that there was a, uh, a question inside you of who I am. Who am I if someone doesn't need me? Mm. Or is it- yeah. I mean, when I got sober, when I stopped drinking, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I liked, what I didn't like. Um, just everything terrified me. It was, I mean, even just to, to read in front of people was terrifying. And, um, and it took me a long, long time to um, just, I mean, I, I would rather do things alone. It's just easier, but I can't do this by myself. You mean recovery? Recovery. What, recovery. No matter what the issue is. Yeah. Yeah. 
life. You can't do it by yourself, you know, as 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 much as I would like to. And um, I, it's just, it, it's been a very slow process of getting to know who I am. Um, you know, I feel like I, I came, I mean, I've always been about healing and taking, you know, as a kid, I injured animals, birds, whatever. I would bring them home, you know, and I would try and, and help them. And, um, and then, um, helping people, maybe even if they didn't want to be helped. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're ringing some bells. (laughs) Now you're ringing some bells. You know, in the through line, which I'm sure you're aware of is control through, through all of this. And it's amazing how we will lie to ourselves and, 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 or maybe we're not even aware of it that underneath all of this is us trying to make ourselves feel comfortable, you know, with the illusion that we can control things that we can't control, whether it's relationships or perfectionism and starting a project and not finishing it. Um, all of that. I mean, that underlies everything. And everything. I, and, but I, and I still struggle with that, you know, and what I found, what I found out is my, you know, I'm self-pity. I, I go into self-pity a lot. And, and you know, depression has been part of my life off and on. And, um, and poor me, you know, I, I'm helpless and hopeless and you know, I can't take care of myself. So I need somebody to take care of me, you know. So I've always, I've found strong men as bosses to take care of me. Mm-hmm. You know, not and when you, you she used air quotes for bosses, meaning not someone who's your literal boss, but somebody, or do you mean literal oh, bosses? Literal bosses. Oh, okay, literal bosses. Yeah. So you're not talking uh, romantically take care of you. You you're meaning emotionally or both? Both, both. And I mean, when I got married, I, I underneath it, I wanted to I wanted to be taken care of. I wanted somebody who who had money who. You know, so I wouldn't have to worry about that and and all of that, and that wasn't the case. Was so. was sex ever a currency that you felt that you had to spend to get what you mm-hmm. wanted? Talk mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, I mean, I always felt obligated if I had sex. I mean, if 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 some if a man was nice to me and took me out to dinner and did all those things, then that I owed him. It was obligatory sex. But I also used, I mean, not not consciously, but I also, at some level, I think, knew that my power as a woman was, my currency was sex. Mm -hmm. And I could use that to get what I wanted. Was there ever a... You know, as you got into support groups and stuff, that that there was an objectification of sorts going on from from your end uh, with the with the other person, not necessarily physically objectifying them, but using them as a vehicle to satisfy your mm. self. You know, emotionally, I, I I guess reducing them from a complex human being to a 
an an object for your own means. I didn't know that at the time, but looking back and the and what I've learned through all these different groups um is yeah, I I was I was trying I it was all for me. It was all selfish motives behind it and I I mean I remember sometimes thinking what do you mean I'm not the only person in your life you know you mean you have other people that are important to you <laughs> and I was like no <laughs> um yeah but it was all about me and I've I've always thought of myself though as a considerate person I mean I th- I th- I'm I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think yeah. you can be a considerate person and still engage in these unhealthy coping mechanisms to survive because for so many of us they're on an unconscious level. Um so uh I, I would en- I would encourage you to not throw the, the baby out with the, the bathwater. You know, my therapist helped me understand that two seemingly contradictory things can be happening at the same time. You can be a compassionate, conscientious, conscientious person and also have these moments where, you know, you you stray from your ethical or moral compass in, in a kind of a way of just wanting to not feel whatever it is you're feeling. Yeah. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. And you have a very... Um, eloquent way of stating that I I wouldn't have been able to come out with those words, but I I have a tendency still to have that black and white thinking, mm-hmm. right and wrong and yeah, and good or bad, yeah. Um, because I I and en- I I do enjoy doing things for people. I enjoy giving. I. Um, you know, I remember when my husband turned 50, was it 50? That would have been 40. 40. Yeah. Cause I left shortly thereafter. <laughs> um, but I, and I'd never done this before, but I did a whole surprise party for him and we had a coffin we had cause he was just, he was, he thought it was the end of the world, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, there were so many moving pieces and, and had a limo come pick us up and, and there were some, um, there was a black tie event at the Hyatt. This was in Lake Tahoe. And the guys ended up at the restaurant where we were having all of this. And so they were the pallbearers and they <laughs> lined. The, I mean, it was just, and it, it it was it turned out beautifully, and I and it I I I got joy from doing that and seeing making seeing how happy he was, and um and and then when my birthday came around, nothing, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> it's like okay, well. <laughs> so uh, talk about um. When you decided to get help for your struggles with intimacy, whether it was avoiding it or being attracted to people who were unavailable, what what was it and how long ago was it that you were like, I, I, 
I need help. Well, I mean, I've been in therapy on and off all my life. I and but I I didn't know what the problem was. Um and I never felt talk therapy really helped all that much. Um and when I came into one you know, I'd been sober for many, many, many years and I um went to another group which is about relationships and I I did that whole thing, worked with this woman and when when we were all everything was said and done, she looked at me and she said, You know, you really should have more recovery than what you do at this stage of the game and I said, I know and that's when she said I that's when the anorexia piece came in, the love avoidant piece. I didn't know there was such a thing. I knew there was something wrong. I couldn't tell you what it was. But she said there's a there's a place where you can go where um they can help you with this. And and I that's when I think I found my tribe. I found a lot of people who had very similar experiences. Mm-hmm. And and some very successful people, uh, they, you just would never have any idea, but it's what's going on on the inside, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, it's developmental trauma. It's child, childhood, generational, all of that stuff. And I, I didn't know about any of that. So that's only been the last, since just before the pandemic. And do you, when you're in your uh, emotional anorexia, are you longing for something but afraid to pursue it? Mm-hmm. Are there okay? Go ahead. Um, I mean, it's going back. Um, I never felt I had a voice. I f- I felt my my dad killed my spirit. And so periodically throughout my life, I i mean, I sang in choirs. I auditioned for hair when I was 21. And um, I did get a call back. <laughs> but I was, I, and they said, we're not going to bite you. I said, I know. But I was so, I was, I took 30 milligrams of Valium and I just was shaking like a leaf. And so obviously that didn't work out. Um, and then I've, um, I was drawn to, um, mm, sound therapy, um, and finding your voice, um, over the years, but never really, um, found anything that, that worked until the pandemic. And I found this woman, um, through what's called the shift network and and she s-h-i-f-t mm-hmm. and uh i don't know if i should say any names or not she's um english woman chloe goodchild and she's been doing voice work for she had an experience in india um back in the 90s and 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 i my apologies, Chloe, if I don't say this right, but her mission was, and she was, she was a singer before and she worked with, um, she performed and worked with choirs and, um, and she was just, uh, 
the Western culture and and educational system was very frustrating for her. And when she came back from India, she wanted to bring the East and the West together. And so she, um, I've been taking multiple courses. I've actually gone to England twice to attend workshops. And, um, you know, and the first one was um, Empower Your Soul's Voice. So it's all about finding your own authentic voice and um, speaking your truth, um, finding it, and finding that source within yourself where you are empowered to speak and to to bring forward what you came here to bring to the world. Um, and her work just really speaks to me, so... That has helped me in many ways. Um, so I still have, have yet to find my voice, but um, I am speaking. And and you feel like you're facing in the right direction, even if they're baby steps? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, th- and that is, I, I think, such a huge thing to highlight because in our black and white thinking, we're like, well, I've been doing this a month and I'm not president of the universe yet so i must be a failure or this must not work yeah no and i i have learned over the years because it's change has been very slow for me and um and that there's a saying that's progress not perfection and then i heard somebody else say well it's spiritual progress not perfection and and it takes work it it's, does. it's hard work yeah and it takes a long time and and I would also add that it's not all torture along no, the way. Yes, no. there's moments of discomfort, but there are also moments of connection and joy that our catastrophizing brains would never have imagined. I, or maybe I should just speak for myself. Well, I have had moments of pure joy and and love and connection that I I thought my heart was going to burst, you know, beautiful, beautiful things that, that I don't think I was capable of feeling back in the day. Um, but still, it's a very, you know, social, I, I, social media I can't do, I sales I can't do. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that just, that's good you know that about yourself, though, because I don't think that means there's something unhealthy going on. I think that's you just honoring who you are. Well, I but see, I thought there was something wrong with me because yeah. I couldn't do this. Other people can do this, and it does. It's what's the big deal? And I'm going. I don't know. There, there's something. Maybe there's something wrong with me. See, I, I, I still haven't found that. Place. I think there's people who are jealous right now, listening to you, going, "I wish I could get off social media." <laughs> yeah. Now that that to me sounds totally healthy. If you were like, I can't leave my house to go meet a friend who I feel safe with, I would be like, well, that might you know need some looking at. Yeah, uh, not necessarily that you know that means you're broken or this is wrong. But um, now you know when you when you shared uh, in that meeting that we were at. Um, uh, <laughs> this doesn't sound cheesy, but there was a light in you as you shared about your struggle with anorexia where 
I could see that that this was a person who um, who is so capable of having connections with people who has stuff to offer um, and I, I, I don't know how to, to describe it but it, it was here is somebody who has something to offer to the world here is somebody who uh, has a warmth that um, it, it touched me Well, thank you for saying that. Because I don't, I, f- I feel like I have that inside of me, but I don't feel like I'm able to, to extend that. Or, I'm, and I, only that particular room that where we, um, that you're talking about. For some reason, I feel very safe in that room. That's a really special place. It is. I mean, it is. It is. There's something, something there that you don't find no. in other places. No. And because I was able to open up and speak in front of 75 people when I first went there. And that, that was astounding to me that I was able to do that because I... In other rooms with less than that, I, I, I freeze. Like, you know, nothing comes out. So, um, yeah. And I've been told often enough that that I that there's something in me. Yeah. Um. But it it only comes out every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I have no control. <laughs> well, I would suggest that it's there even when you don't feel it or recognize it. it you know, we we can't see the look in our eyes when we're talking to someone else. And they often know more about what's going on in us or how safe we are than we ourselves do. And I I sensed that in you, which is why I wanted to have you as a as as a guest. I could I felt like this is somebody who I think um, has has a lot to share and is is capable of uh, being vulnerable and transparent, which to me is the opposite of anorexia. So it's like I could sense this this wall of water behind the behind the dam. Well, there is a wall of water, and I think that wall of water, I, Fantasia. Do you remember? Did you see mm-hmm. the original Fantasia, yeah. the Sorcerer's Apprentice? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I I think I'm Mickey Mouse, you know, yeah. and I I'm terrified of being overrun by water, you know, and and maybe and maybe I have to be okay with that, you know, yeah, and letting go and just going with the flow and. I'm not worrying about it so much. <laughs> Some of the most profound moments in my recovery have been me accepting other people's perception of how they see me through their eyes. And that's why I think support groups are so important because if we strictly go about how we see ourselves through our own distorted thinking, uh, it's a really lonely, uh, distorted reality 
Um, and I just I talk about support groups all the time. But if I didn't go to them, I wouldn't get to to meet someone <laughs> someone like you, <laughs> Dale. I'm I'm so uh, grateful that that you um, braved whatever fears you might have had about coming and and sharing your your life and giving us a a, a peek into uh, the battles with with uh, emotional anorexia. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Paul. What a lovely human being. And it sounded like she was she was really struggling to uh to take that compliment in right there at the end. Um we are going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Before I take it out with uh, a stack of surveys... Um, just want to mention a couple of things. We still need support on Patreon. I feel like an asshole asking for this every week, but we really, really do. And I've been adding things to the different tiers. Um, most recently, um, I added, what did I add? I add a, added, I forget which tier. <laughs> Could I be less prepared for mentioning what what tiers we have but we have it's the tier started at the one dollar and um the twenty dollar one there's a one dollar five dollar um twenty dollar i think there's one in between there as well um and it it goes up from there but we have a variety of things you one of the twenty dollar a month you can join our sunday zoom support group hangout um Another tier, uh, I believe it's the $10 a month, or maybe it's the $5 a month. Oh, my God, you are such a disaster. Uh, You can hear the uh, extra surveys that I hold back and read just for Patreon people. Uh, There are videos and behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, My woodworking, pictures of my girlfriend and Gracie, and somebody requested more videos of... uh, of Gracie, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start doing that after she gets groomed. She's a little bit of a mess right now, and honestly, a little embarrassing. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Richard. This one is fucking heavy. We're diving right in. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? And he writes, "You are the most selfish, self-absorbed, self-important person imaginable. You should have answered the fucking phone. You said you'd." end up being a better dad than your old man but when your daughter was dying you were too busy to answer quote there was no way you could have known unquote your wife says because 
she's somehow able to overlook your massive personality flaws and give you the benefit of the doubt. She says no one could have known a school shooting would ever happen in your peaceful little town. But if you had a choice, you could have been the kind of father who answered the phone in the middle of the day whenever his kid called. Instead, you didn't. And now you'll never get another phone call again. And you have the audacity to be sad about that when you weren't there for your baby when she needed you. You're alive, and you caused her to die alone, and you're sitting here acting like you're the victim. That's so pompous and self-aggrandizing, and it's sickening. She went through pain you can't imagine. You don't have the right to cry about this. You didn't die. She did. It should have been you. Your daughter was a better person than you. Fuck. Man, I am so sorry for your loss and to have it happen in such an awful way. And that just seems to be a part of our brain that when something horrible happens, especially when someone we love dies, that we find a way to blame ourselves. And I would just, if you're listening, I would ask you, if there is an afterlife, do you think your daughter wants you beating yourself up? Or do you think if she could reappear, she would hug you and say, Dad, I love you. You were a great dad. I'm okay. This is from the love survey. This is filled out by Frankie. And uh, I love this one. Frankie writes, I love the assurance I feel when protecting myself in little moments from nasty people. That is such a huge one. That is such a fucking great tool for self-care. It's like when we don't have those tools, the world feels so overwhelming and the things we do to cope with the anxiety and dread, at least maybe I should speak for myself, but once I started learning how to set boundaries and, and distance myself or even cut people out of my lives, my life that are, yeah, I have multiple lives, uh, that are toxic, um, it just made life so much better. Uh, Frankie also writes, I love sex. Uh, even though I've chosen to not have it at least for a while. I love Atlantic beaches and East Coast brashness. I love a friendly neighbor. And I love these little vegan chocolate date pies that they have at the grocery store. That seems like an interesting combination, chocolate and date. I got to question that. Because it seems like neither of those need to be friends. Chocolates and dates. Yeah, Frankie, I gotta, I gotta have a heart to heart with you because I, that seems like a just a, a bad matchmaker, and uh, as a result, I cast you to hell. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by Heart Hands, and uh, he writes uh, to the question: What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? You're more than grown up. You're 40 now and you've worked your ass off in therapy for a few years. So this is speaking from my experience and helping you deal with life challenges when I say you are physically revolting, unable to give love, and don't deserve love of any kind, not even from your cat, not even close. Sorry, buddy. Also, 
Every little move you make turns into a huge mistake. That's quite a fucking talent. Best to accept it. You're the worst kind of person. But I say that with compassion. And here's a boatload of, quote, healthy coping skills, unquote, to get you through the next 40 years. Please, dear God, no more than 40, but hopefully much less. (laughs) He comments to make the podcast better. Donuts. You know what? I am going to run that by the steering committee and the board and the CFO and the CEO, but not the comptroller because I don't know what comptrollers do. I think they control the comps. I could be, I could be wrong. I took a little Latin as a baby. Dude, thank you for that. That, that kind of made me want to laugh and cry at the same time. This is from the love survey filled out by Zellers. And uh, they write, I love that our 75-pound pit bull mix is so scared of the broom that he won't eat his food if the broom is too close by. That is fantastic. I love setting my alarm 30 minutes earlier than I have to, so I have some time to stay cozy in bed listening to my partner sleeping peacefully. I don't understand why anybody wouldn't set their alarm extra early to not have to go right into your day. I I find it so jolting. So I often set my alarm like an hour earlier than I need. And then I can just go, fuck the day, snooze. (laughs) I get to appreciate about five seconds of knowing that I have more time to sleep and then I'm sleeping. Uh, They also write, I love coming home from work and swapping stories with my partner about our day, feeling so seen and safe. Those are awesome. Thank you for those. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Short Angry Cardinal Bird. Uh, He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s, says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. I would say way more than slightly. Um, He's never been sexually abused. He's been emotionally abused. He writes, my father and, to a much lesser extent, my mother were cold and distant to me throughout my childhood. Any attempt to express emotions or allow myself to be vulnerable were met with indifference at best and mockery at worst. As a young boy growing up in the South, showing emotion was viewed as weakness. To my father, I was a pussy, an F-word, a girly man, all because I had a tough time hiding my sensitivity. I didn't like sports and I wasn't the outdoorsy type. I liked music and video games and reading. My father didn't understand this and instead, uh, instead of making any attempt to embrace my interests, chose to keep his distance or outright ridicule me for the things I enjoyed. All of this was compounded by his functional alcoholism. If he wasn't working, he was drinking and when he drank, he was an absolute dick. He would gaslight me and the rest of my family about his drinking. According to him, he never got drunk. He didn't have a problem. We had no clue what we were talking about. Even once I started to have my own issues with alcohol abuse in my late teens, he would treat me as if I were completely ignorant on the topic. Fortunately, I'm 12 years sober now in big part due to worries that I would eventually end up like him. Those worries weren't unfounded. 
My father is now experiencing late-stage cirrhosis. His drinking picked up considerably when he retired at the start of the pandemic. It turned into an all-day, everyday sort of thing. He's been in the hospital hospital at least a half a dozen times for issues related to drinking. This includes pancreatitis, severe dehydration, etc. He doesn't want to stop drinking. He's outright refused every ounce of help anyone has offered him over the past few years. At this point, he can barely walk, has vision problems, and is exhibiting symptoms of hepatic encephalopathy, which almost feels like a quick-moving dementia. Most of the time, he can't tell you what day it is or what his kids' names even are, but he does still drink, and he drinks a lot. I love my mother, but she is somewhat of an enabler. The way she sees it, at least if she buys his beers, he's not going to try driving himself to get it. It's kind of fucked up, but I get where she's coming from. My dad and I have no real relationship at this point. We were low contact before this, but now it's complete radio silence. If I tried calling him, he wouldn't even answer. But I don't know if it's because he doesn't care or if he doesn't even realize the phone is ringing. My brother also keeps his distance. He has two kids of his own and is an excellent father. When our dad started treating my niece and nephew the same way he treated me growing up, my brother quickly moved to cut that cancer out of his life. If one good thing has come from this is that my mother and I are much closer than we used to be. Those same emotions I used to be chastised for are now embraced. Who knew being empathetic and caring could actually be a good thing? Any positive experiences with the abusers? My parents did not My parents did provide for me. My brother nor I ever went hungry or without. We lived in a solid, lower-middle-class household. My dad always worked, often 60-plus hours a week, and viewed this as a source of pride. Though, looking back now, it's obvious that a big part of it was due to his avoidance of having to be around the rest of the family. He literally worked 12-hour days, five to six days a week, because that was preferable to spending time with his kids. Darkest thoughts. My father is going to die. It's not a matter of if, but when. There's a part of me that wishes it would happen already. He He's made the decision to kill himself and the rest of my family is miserable as a result. I genuinely believe I won't feel any sadness when it happens. Honestly, I imagine feeling a tremendous sense of relief as if we can all move on with our lives. I also, and this is where I really feel scummy, daydream about the idea of the inheritance money uh, that I'll receive when he passes. Despite working constantly while growing up and providing for us, he's made absolutely no attempt to help out once I transitioned into adulthood. Even when I was briefly homeless and nearly drinking myself to death, he refused to offer even the slightest bit of support financially, or definitely not emotionally. My inheritance will be enough that I can pay off my student loans and save up for a down payment on a house. Two major steps in bettering my own life and potentially starting a family. From tragedy comes new strength and whatnot. Darkest secrets. Despite the damage my father's drinking has done to our family, my own during my late teens and early 20s eclipsed his. No one knows the extent of my problem. At my peak, I was drinking a fifth of bourbon every single day. I did this for two years. Fortunately, I was extremely boring and would drink alone at home, 
so I could watch reruns of Cops and eat shitty frozen food. I also have no lasting effects from said drinking. Yeah, is anybody ever doing anything healthy while they're watching Cops? Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. In my early 20s, I was falsely accused of sexual assault by an entirely consenting partner. This was someone who I loved and trusted, but lacked the maturity to talk about complex emotions when it really mattered. Instead, they broke things off with me after our first real sexual encounter and chose to tell their loved ones that I forced myself on them. As a result, sex became something of a traumatic thing for me for a very long time. It's warped my way of thinking about the subject, meaning I'm extremely timid and second-guess everything I do. My partner is receptive to this and has helped me work through my issues over the years. But due to this, my sexual fantasies really aren't all that powerful or dark. And there's a question mark. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my father that his inability to be a dad and a decent person to me has forever fucked up the way I approach others. I can't maintain friendships with men because I had no father figure when I needed one. I would like to tell him about the countless hours I've spent in therapy asking myself why I'm broken, why I second-guess everything I say or do, and why I feel so little emotion for most people or things despite knowing I have a huge heart. What, if anything, do you wish for? <laughs> for Don Felder to reunite with the Eagles for a legitimate farewell tour. Don, for those of you who don't know, Don Felder was their uh, guitar player and an amazing, amazing lead guitar player. Have you shared th these things with others? My therapist and my partner know these things. They're receptive. My partner has a wonderful relationship with her parents, so there's definitely some aspects of the situation that she can't relate to, but she does her best. And you know the other thing that I think is cool about um, having a partner with a healthy relationship with their, their family is it can be kind of uh, a way for us to go, oh, that's what it looks like. This is what's unacceptable. And sometimes we can kind of extrapolate that out to our other relationships and say, oh, you know, um, that, that her parents don't talk to her like that. So, you know, and they love each other. So why does this friend who supposedly loves me and I supposedly love talk to me uh, in a way? I don't know if that made any sense. I'd feel... Mm. I'm going to refund you that last 20 seconds. Uh, so contact me through your lawyer. How do you feel after writing these things down? Exhausted. I just spent the morning in therapy discussing the exact same thing. What, if anything, would you like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Your parents are people. People are dumb and make mistakes and can be total assholes. Just because they tell you you're wrong doesn't mean it's correct. Many times, they're the ones in the wrong. If you've grown up in a household without love or support, you're probably going to be a bit fucked up, but that's okay too. The best thing you can do is to tell yourself you're going to be fine. You may need a little help to get there, and you may not be able to fix everything that's broken, but you can be bigger than the mistakes of our mothers and fathers. So true. Thank you for that one. And then finally, uh, 
This is I'm I'm gonna save some of these uh, the rest of these surveys for the Patreon, and I, I hope that that came off as passive aggressively as uh, I intended that. Uh, finally, this is from the love survey, and this is filled out by Row, and they just simply write, "I love when my husband knows when I'm in my dark place, says nothing, and just holds me, no judgment." Just love. That's so sweet. Who knew? Not me. For so many years. That most of the times you don't even have to say anything. You just need to be there. And by be there, I don't mean just physically. I mean, like, pay attention. If you're out there and you're... uh, and you're struggling, you're feeling alone, I hope these last 84 minutes have helped you realize that uh, our lives can get better and um, it's just about finding our tribe. And your tribe is out there. Sometimes it fucking blows trying to find your tribe. But I really believe if we keep keep doing it, you know, I had a beautiful support group meeting last night. Um, it was Valentine's Day and one of the Members put this little table in the middle of our circle and it had these Valentine's Day treats that she had made and a candle. And it just reminded me that that was the place where I forged the template for what love looked like because they loved me unconditionally. And they loved me enough for me to realize they couldn't all be bullshitting and that I might be worthy of love. And that changed everything. Everything. And that's one of the reasons why I do this podcast, in addition to loving the sound of my voice. So if you're out there, I hope you find your tribe. And just uh, remember that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.